The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus said to his disciples, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but to stay in the city until you have clothed with the power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, raised his hands, and blessed them. As he blessed them, he parted from them and was taken up to heaven. They did him homage, and then returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, praising God. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, if you ever have the occasion to visit Jerusalem and you make your way to the little shrine which stands at the top of the Mount of Olives, it marks the traditional place from which the Lord ascended into heaven. And there you'll probably be shown a footprint in the stone, allegedly left by Jesus as he blasted off into heaven. But this footprint in that stone is very unusual. It shows, perhaps, that the Lord had size 16 feet and two big toes on the foot. So it's not a very convincing sign. But I suppose that it's a sign of the strength of people's regret for what they feel to be absent. When those we love die or are separated from us by a great deal of distance, we miss them. It's natural to miss them. They leave a gap in our lives. We feel that something we share is not there. We're lonely without them. And we often cherish memories of them if they have departed this life. Maybe memories that are fixed on things that they have given us, gifts, or places they were associated with, or things they once used, chairs they used to sit in, so when we look at the chair, what do we see? We notice the absence, not a presence. So the little shrine on the top of the Mount of Olives is like the Holy Sepulchre. It's a place of absence, not of presence. Sometimes we keep photographs of those we have loved and who are no longer with us. But when we look at the photographs, it's not always satisfying. It's a bittersweet experience because it doesn't always bring the person closer to us, but it reminds us of the lost. So maybe trying to fix the last footprint of Jesus on the earth is a little like that. Well, missing somebody is important. If I've been away from my parish in the desert in Southern California and I return, I'm always pleased when the people come up to me after Sunday Mass and say, oh, Father, welcome back. We missed you. 
It's when they stop saying, we missed you, that it's time to get worried, you know? Because we only miss those we have loved. If we don't miss them, it's a sign that we never really loved them. So as they say, grief is part of the price we pay for love. Now you might think then that parting from Jesus would make his disciples sad, that they would be sunk in grief. But in fact, St. Luke tells us it has the opposite effect. Luke says they worshipped him and then went back to the city full of joy and were continually in the temple praising God. It's a strange reaction then to losing somebody. People do very strange things when they're shocked by loss or grief. But as far as I know, they don't go round with great joy and spend most of their time going to church. It's an unusual reaction. But St. Luke has given us a clue to the meaning of that reaction in the phrase, full of joy. They were full of joy. Because he only uses it at one other point in his gospel, right back in chapter 2 at the very beginning. With St. Luke's gospel, the beginning is in the end and the end is in the beginning. He likes symmetry. So in chapter 2, we find the message of the angel to the shepherds when Jesus is born. Behold, I bring you news of great joy that will come to all the people. So the angel brought the news that the incarnation, the birth of God made man, to the shepherds. But it was not their task to bring it to all people. His message was not just for them. It wasn't for this little group. It wasn't for their family. It wasn't for their friends. It was for all people. It was a universal message. And the news of great joy, which was for all people, was that God and humanity were made one in Christ in this baby. Our human nature was taken up into the life of God in the individual life of the child who was baby and God. So this is the news of great joy. This is why they were continuing in the temple praising God. This is why they were full of joy. So their joy stems from the fact that things on earth are definitively and permanently changed because they are ruled from where Jesus is. It's as if the whole human enterprise has a new CEO, a new force of direction. Earthly rulers may think they are in charge, but they are not. Now at the midpoint of his gospel, Luke writes, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Well, his being taken up, a form of ascension, refers to his crucifixion, the moment in which he was lifted up from the earth to draw all people to himself. And it can also be taken to refer to his resurrection from the dead. So in the ascension, he has been taken up to the place of glory that is eternally his. This is a feast of taking up. Now you remember that in the temple in Jerusalem, the high priest went up into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, carrying the blood of sacrificed animals, the Holy of Holies, the representation on earth of the space where God dwelt in the midst of his people. So the high priest went once a year into this majestic and terrifying presence of the unapproachable God. And through him, Israel asked forgiveness of the Lord and renewal of the covenant. Now the only other person allowed to enter the Holy of Holies was a new king on the day of his enthronement. So he could only enter 
once in a lifetime. So the Tams and the other texts of Scripture speak about the king going up to a place of honor in the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, this is important background for understanding the ascension of Jesus. He is our high priest, but he is also our king. He is our high priest who enters the Holy of Holies, not the earthly one in Jerusalem, but the great and perfect one in heaven. And the blood he carries is not the blood of animals, but his own blood which is offered once and for all to gain an eternal redemption. And there he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is enthroned then at the right hand of the Father, enthroned as judge of all. He is king and judge, but not a tyrannical king, not like Pharaoh, not like Herod, but a loving, merciful king, a shepherd king. Jesus is our shepherd king and our high priest. Ascension Day is then the original feast of Christ the King. Because of his love and obedience, the Father has exalted him and given him the name above all other names. And what is the name above all other names? The name of God, which we dare not pronounce. So we celebrate his victory and its meaning for us. The fact that he has become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, for all who follow him, for all who are willing to be taken up by him and with him. As the prayers of today's Mass put it, he has been taken up to heaven to claim for us a share in his divine life, and where he has gone, we hope to follow. So Jesus has gone ahead of us into God's space, into God's world. And our world is now ruled from that throne as he draws us into that space and into that movement. Now when we speak of Jesus ascending into heaven, we have to interpret it against the scriptural background of space and time. We shouldn't focus on an idea of two specific localities, one superimposed on the other, separated by an impermeable veil. But we should stretch our imagination and try to think of two different kinds of space. Jesus has entered God's space, a different kind of space, and a different kind of time. God's space and ours, what we call heaven and earth, because we have no other words to describe them, are different, but they're not far from each other. Different, but not distant. So in professing that we are being drawn after him to where he has gone before, we're proclaiming that one day these two will be united in a totally mysterious way and that Jesus will be present to us in a radically different way to the way we know now. Well, the message of the angel is that Jesus has been taken up into heaven. What is heaven? Where is it? Well, heaven is not up there just as hell is not down there. We describe them in that way because we have no other words to describe them. We don't know what it is, because eye hath not seen, nor hath ear heard. We speak that say sometimes, but we don't really mean it. It's a kind of metaphorical speech. But the important point, the essential teaching of today's feast, is that Jesus is now in heaven. Now, many people will not be surprised by this. They might even say, big deal. That's because it's common these days for people to think that everyone who has died is in heaven. That's why we don't have masses 
requiem masses in which the theme is that we pray for the remission of the sins of the person who's passed away. We have ceremonies of thanksgiving for their lives. Oh. We need to pray for them. Pray for them. Not go in for instant canonization. But people sometimes think that everyone who has died is in heaven. Well, people may say it, but it's not necessarily true. It's not automatic that people go to heaven. People assume that this will be my fate. The 18th century French philosopher Voltaire was on his deathbed, and the priest who assisted him asked him, he said, Monsieur de Voltaire, do you renounce Satan? And Voltaire said, Monsieur, this is no time to be making new enemies. <laughs> God will forgive me. It's his job. Sometimes people presume that. You know? God will forgive us because it's his job. And in fact, before the ascension of Jesus, no human being was in heaven. Jesus Christ is the first. That's because where he is, there is heaven. There is blessedness and joy. And it's only because he has opened the way for us through his passion, death, and resurrection that we can hope to be with him in heaven, which means being with him. And we can hope this for ourselves. But Christian charity demands that we hope this for others too. That's why we pray for the souls of the faithful departed. But to hope for something is not to take something for granted. Throughout the history of Christianity, people have tried to imagine what heaven is like. A 19th century English parson said that heaven for him would be like eating pâté de foie gras to the sound of trumpets. Well, I hope for a bit more than that, if I ever get there myself. Huh? I've never been too fond of trumpets. And it's often represented in images of a palace or a mansion with a gate, and sometimes we think of choirs of angels, clouds, and rainbows. But heaven is being with in a relationship more intense, more profound than any we have ever experienced. Heaven is being with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's being with the God who gave us life. Heaven is being with those whom we have loved in this life because love is immortal and never dies. It's also a being with those whom we have, should have loved better in this life. But hell is the opposite. It's a fracture of relationship. It's isolation. It's being alone with what we have chosen. It's the absence from all those we have loved. Fundamentally, then, absence from God. Hell is an eternal loneliness. But when we long for heaven, all that we desire, all that we hope for, is the company of the saints, the holy ones of God, who are with Christ. We want to be with them in Christ. Well, today we give thanks that Christ, who ascended to heaven first, has opened the way for us to be with that company. As the old spiritual has it, when the saints go marching in, I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. <laughs>